Fatality. All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Let's innovate like it's the 1980s. Pinball's getting weird. Flawless victory. And a NES too powerful for your PC. All this and more on this week's show. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Another week, another show then, Chris. How have you been this week, mate? Yeah, not too bad. It's a long weekend here, so I've had a Monday off um, and plenty of time. Been playing Lotus 3 this week because there may or may not be a friendly competition in one of the Facebook groups, which is maybe turning not so friendly, but I'm determined yeah, to win. you got to so. get practice in. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> never really yourself? got into Lotus 3. Never really got I, I, I love the Lotus series. Uh, mm. 3 was the one with like the futuristic tracks, wasn't it? And the checkerboard. Yeah, there's a couple in there with like magnets and turbo zones and stuff. Yeah, went a bit too far fetched for me. I like the the nitty gritty realism of the first two and the the pea yeah, soup weather yeah. and the the grey backdrops of the British landscape. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty similar to two, uh, and it's got the track editor, if you can call it that. You kind of just edit mm. some parameters, and it generates a track for you. But yeah, it's it's all right. It's all right for a reason. Was it Nerbs? Was that what the track editor was called? Or was Nerbs? it Rex? Rex. That's it. R E C S. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't know where I cool. got Nerbs from. <laughs> but yeah, this week, this week I've mostly been scrubbing an Apple IIe for part two of the um, Apple II Trash to Treasure. So. Uh, on the heels of the Indian ZX Spectrum that needed a really good clean. This one does too. I'm really enjoying the soapy suds and the cleaning montages again this week. I'm in my happy place, Chris. <laughs> nice. The only thing I clean is cars, Neil, and, uh, and maybe doing the vacuuming once in a while. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, do you remember last week, Neil, we chatted about the Atari Panther and Reese's excellent video on the topic? Remember that? We did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I've been doing some digging. Um, not that I don't trust Reese, because he really is one of the probably the definitive guru guru. Let's call him that on all things Atari. <laughs> but I think I've unearthed some things on the Panther specifically um, that even Reese doesn't know about. Um, so, according to my research this week, this kind of unlocks some of the reasons potentially why the Panther project was abandoned. Um, apparently, they did some studies, and sixty percent of the time, it worked every time. When in use, it stings the nostrils, but in a good way. Apparently, it was illegal in nine countries, and it was made with real bits of panther. So make of that what you will, Neil. Chris, if you don't have kids, your dad joke abilities are completely wasted. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was an interesting segment um, from Reese. Uh, you obviously think you're an anchor man now. Uh, having done, <laughs> how many shows have you done now? Three, four shows. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, there was an interesting segment in that part of the show where we we asked the question, why didn't Atari make an ST into a console in the late 80s instead of going down that Panther route? And uh, Reese has come back to us and he said, there was talk and there were rumors about exactly that happening so it sounds like the rabbit hole does go a lot deeper and there's there's a lot more to find out about that topic so um if anyone can dig that up then it's recent and maybe there'll be something about that on his channel at some point um well worth watching out for anyway you stay classy san diego apple are well well, they're not my favorite brand if i'm honest uh, but but credit where it's due they do make a nice looking product 
I'll always give them that. Um, and they're also known for innovation. Uh, and while, no, the iPhone was not the first smartphone with a touchscreen. I was rocking a Windows CE phone for quite a while for work. Um, but anyway, that aside, you can't help but acknowledge that it's the iPhone that brought them to the masses in a robust and very easy to use um, form factor. It's funny that you're talking about this this morning because um, I was scrolling through TikTok. Yes, I use TikTok. This mo- it was actually just this morning while I was having my breakfast. I don't know if my phone's spying on me or what, or if it's just in tune with you. But it um, it played the video of the launch of the iPhone with Steve Jobs. So at the launch, Steve Jobs revealed um, a lineup of four current generation phones, and I've got it up on the screen in front of me here. Uh, included the Moto Q, a BlackBerry, a Palm Trio and a Nokia E62. I don't know Mm. if uh, our listeners will remember any of those, but all of them had keyboards on. And of course, the big thing about the iPhone was we're doing away with the keyboard because every app should be able to be um, adaptable and have a a user interface that adapts to exactly what it needs to do rather than being constrained by the keys that are uh, there on the phone. Um, Mm. And uh, it was the right thing to do. It was a smart thing to do. Uh, You mentioned Windows CE there. do you mean Windows C as a phone or Windows C as a handheld that just happens to have phone functions? Which did you have? No, no, it was it was most definitely a, a phone form factor, but it did have a nice full full size screen um, with hardware buttons down the bottom for the actual phone functions. But then, if you wanted to use the Windows side of it, and pr- predominantly I just used it for checking work email, um, then you could use a touch screen. In all honesty, that did require a stylus that um, came in came in the device, and then you could flick out a uh, keyboard. So you could either use the stylus for the on-screen keyboard, or you could flick out the, the keyboard that was underneath it. And that that actually uh, remained my preference, even when I moved over onto Android phones. Uh, one of my favorites was the HTC Desire Z, which had that same feature. It had this nice little flick out keyboard at the bottom, so you could just use both hands and stand there and happily type and text away. It was really good. Um, yeah, what about yourself, Neil? Um, Windows C phones, um, I did have some. I, I supported a lot. I supported a lot more than I had. So, um, uh, I mean, all of the devices are really a, a topic for another day and the pain of trying to uh, to set them up with um, with an email server. Likewise, for Blackberries, you had to set up the Bez server and all of those things behind the scenes. It was a, it was a bit of a pain. Um but uh, the, the big problem with the majority of them was exactly what Steve Jobs identified or the team behind him identified, which was that it just doesn't work. There's just no logic whatsoever in trying to shrink the desktop metaphor down into a handheld device. I think the whole idea of doing that was flawed. And I can see how it evolved because with those early Windows C devices, it was um, a lot of them were kind of flip open and it was like a small desktop PC, but then it evolved into handheld devices with styluses and then phones and the operating system just didn't keep up. And that's not to say Windows C was the only OS because companies like Palm were doing a wonderful job with their OSs on their handheld devices. They, they really got it. Um, so there was Windows C, there was also Windows Mobile, but that was essentially CE based with some phone functions bolted on. Uh, when Microsoft really didn't get it right until Windows Phone. And I thought that was a fantastic OS. I loved my Windows Phone. I had a, a Nokia because um, Nokia did the flagship Windows phones, didn't they? And it, to this day, you know, I, I don't use it anymore, but I, uh, I took it out 
um, over Christmas, I took out the drawer of old phones. Everyone's got the drawer of old phones. I pulled out the Windows One, fired it up. Still working perfectly. The interface is still lovely. Absolutely nothing in the App Store, if the App Store even still opens. Uh, but that was always the case. Uh, but the OS itself was fantastic. But um, anything before it was just horrible. And I think whether you like Apple or not, sorry, anything Microsoft-based before it was just horrible. Like I say, Palm and other companies did a great job. But um, I, I think we do owe a, a small debt of gratitude, at least, to, to Apple for giving all of the others a big slap in the face. I think that's true to say. Yeah, I mean, you probably do have a good point there. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Uh, but in terms of innovation, innovation, I mean, the same could be argued for the iPad as well. You know, both, in fact, the iPad and the iPhone, they achieved the marketing holy grail of becoming a proprietary eponym. Yes, I had to look that up. Um, and that is that the brand or the product name became a noun. Um, uh, sometimes it becomes a verb, but in this case, they became a noun. Um People, including the media, would use iPhone instead of smartphone, and they'd use iPad instead of tablet. Uh, this is kind of, I think, for the most part, being corrected now in people's language. But I, I'm sure you do as well, Neil. I certainly know some people who will still say iPhone, even though they're talking about an Android phone or whatever. Um, my favorite example of that, actually, um, and we might be digressing slightly, but um, is Hoover, uh, which may be a bit UK specific, <laughs> um, but Hoover are a vacuum cleaner manufacturer, and in the UK. Uh, that's what I remember growing up anyway, it became the word for any vacuum cleaner. And in fact, it became a verb as well. It became the, the, the word that you use to describe the act of vacuuming in the UK. People don't vacuum, they hoover. Um, is that still the case, Neil? Yeah, I, I did the hoovering just last night. So uh, it's, still, <laughs> it's very much still the case. Um, uh, I still hear plenty of people say, iPad when they mean tablet, not so much iPhone. I think people differentiate between the phones now a lot better. Um, the one that the one that irks me is one that my dad uses, which is FaceTime. Um, I'll FaceTime you on Sunday, son. When what actually means is he'll phone me or he'll WhatsApp me or or he'll yeah. communicate me with me in any way using his <laughs> iPad. Uh, according to him, that's FaceTiming, whether you're using the FaceTime app or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's a good example as well. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so, I mean, anyway, I think we've digressed a little bit talking about vacuuming and stuff. I also did the vacuuming today, uh, the hoovering, sorry, using a Dyson, if that's possible, to hoover using a Dyson. <laughs> um, but anyway, Apple, back to Apple. Let's get back to the story, Neil. So Apple, apparently they innovate, um, and we may have differences of opinion on that. The latest, uh, thanks to a story on The Register shared with us by Paul, a.k.a. Hemsky, uh, Hermsky, sorry, is a brand new computer by Apple, and it's an all-in-one computer. And to protect their innovation, they're, of course, filing a patent for this amazing new design because it's an all-in-one computer that is a keyboard. That's right, Neil. <laughs> it's a computer inside a keyboard. And in fact, I didn't, I didn't give you the heads up about this, Neil. I, I, I must confess, but I think I've been sent the prototype I'm pretty sure I've been sent oh, the prototype. Hang on. Let me just grab. <laughs> I think this must be it. Going by what I've seen of the page, this is it, right? <laughs> for for listeners, must... he's holding up an Acorn Electron. It's another one of his oh. dad jokes. They're all coming oh, out. Oh, sorry. Today. Is that, <laughs> sorry that, that's not the one. Sorry, sorry. It must be this one. It must be this one. Hang on. Is that This must be it. This is the new Apple here oh, for the, the first time. ZX Global Spectrum. reveal. Oh, that's a ZX. <laughs> All right, I'll leave that there. You get the point. Um, does it does it ring any bells, Neil? You know, a computer inside a keyboard. Has this been done before? 
Well, um, I believe you you mentioned they patented it or, or they, they're trying to. Uh, and the question that that raises with me, which you've highlighted brilliantly there, is can they do that? You know, all in one computers exist. Uh, wedge computers, computers in a keyboard exist. Um, you've got the Pi. The new Pi is, is in a keyboard, isn't it? Um, so yeah. what exactly are they patenting? Um, is there some form of innovation is there a mechanism is there what 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 do they think they've invented here chris <laughs> well that, that's a good question we we better get on to discussing that in a moment but i, I think it's important <laughs> i think it's interesting to discuss what has come before what was, what's your favorite wedge-shaped computer just out of interest um i've got a prop next to me because i thought you might ask this and because um, there are plenty the to looking, choose from let's face it one of the best looking <laughs> little wedge-shaped computers is this which is the auric atmos Ooh. which is a lovely size i love the red and black color scheme um for listeners it's about it's a little bit smaller than an amiga 600 if you've never seen one before um assuming you've seen an amiga 600 <laughs> using references that you may not have seen i'm sure you have um but the Auric Atmos is just, it's like the A-team van of wedge computers. That's how I describe mm. it. Red and black. Looks mean. Um, and uh, I just I just like the proportions and the style of it. So, yeah, I would go with that. How about yourself? Have you got a standout favorite? Uh, it has to be the A500, just straight away without even thinking. Um, but in terms of portability, the A1200 is is fast becoming my favorite Amiga of, of all time, definitely, the more I get to grips with it. But mm -hmm. yeah, just from a nostalgia, the look of the machine, it, yes, it's big and bulky and it takes up half your desk. But yeah, it's just a gorgeous looking machine in my eyes. Yeah. What what what, um, just, what year um... is the Aura Capmos out of interest? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, that's it's going to be mid-80s. Um... Yeah. Because going black, that's up. quite that's quite innovative for the for the time. Hang on, hang on. I'll do it. I'll do a Google search for you and uh, have the answer. And while I'm doing that, can you just describe to the listeners what this Apple device looks like? What is it that they're putting forward? Yeah. So from the images that I've seen, it, it pretty much looks like. I mean, obviously, it's it's got a a, a nicer sort of low profile um, look to the keys on the on the um, diagrams that I've seen, um, but it just looks like well, probably the closest thing, as you've already mentioned, is the Pi four hundred. To me, this looks like a Pi four hundred, a little bit squarer though. Um, but there are there are some things I think within the design that potentially is what they're. Um, trying to patent rather than just the all-in-one keyboard itself, the all-in-one keyboard computer. Um, but who knows? I mean, this is Apple. <laughs> you know, who knows what they're going to try and get away with? At the end of the day, just because they filed a patent doesn't mean they'll get it. Doesn't mean it'll be awarded. True. Um, true. So true, yeah, it'll be. The Oric was 1984. The the Atmos, by the way, the Oric 1984 wow. discontinued 1985, so it wasn't around for long. <laughs> yeah, that's a gorgeous but, looking um, design for that time period. I don't think I... it's a lovely design mm. and um, something that's um, less gorgeous, but again, just highlights the absurdity of um, Apple trying to patent this if it's on looks and design alone is um, mm. a horrible little thing, which I don't know if you've ever seen called the C64 web.it. Um, oh, right. This is basically looks like half a laptop. It looks like the laptop without the screen. So just a, a flat thing with a key laptop style keyboard and a touchpad in front of it. Uh, and it was, Designed to do web browsing, I think it came out in the late 90s. 
Um, and mm. then you could also, you know, it had the C64 brand on it. So I think there was an emulator or something like that built into it. It wasn't a C64 in any sense of the word. Um, but again, just another example of these kind of key, all-in-one keyboard designs that came long before mm. this idea. So yeah, do, do what you true. will with that information. <laughs> Well, funny enough, when I first got into this hobby, you know, when I first got that hit of nostalgia and when I purchased an A500 and then ordered an Electron Plus 3, all of that kind of stuff, one of the other things I started searching for is, is there a PC in a keyboard? Is Can you get a modern PC in that form factor? There were a couple out there, but they were mainly designed as um, point-of-sale devices. I mean, you could use them for anything else. But I think I'd sort of jumped on that bandwagon too late they were sort of being phased out and they were becoming really really hard mm-hmm. to get hold of um and the more i researched into it a few people did and and it's when somebody points it out to you you just kind of face palm and go oh yeah good point because they were saying well isn't that just a laptop without a screen um yeah. and, it, and, it, and it just so <laughs> is so i think the closest thing i've come to realizing that dream um until Apple come out with their products would be the Pi 400. Um, and I thought that was a that was a fantastic device. I just used it with Pi Meager and having a play with that. But I did play about in Linux as well um, for a little bit just to see what it could do. Can I watch YouTube? Can I use the word processor that comes with it? That kind of thing. Um, but the point of frustration was, hey, well, guess what? This thing would be great if it had a battery inside it and a screen attached. <laughs> so you kind of come full circle to maybe this isn't actually what I want after all, you know. And that, that, that was kind of in the era of power-hungry Pentium 4s and things like that. So it was very hard unless you were going to go down the route of mobile processors, but even those were pretty thirsty back then. Um, mm. That's where things like risk come into it so nicely and that is the route that um, Apple is now going with its new processors. I've just seen the patent application and on the register it says it describes a computer in an input device. So Mm. still no no real clarity there on that. And the funny thing, the really funny thing about this register article is it shows the um, image Apple's new computer in a keyboard plan. Then if you scroll down a bit more, it says... uh, it shows a picture and it says another device with a relatively large internal volume uh, and, and it's a, a wedge-shaped computer. And of course, it's an Apple II. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Oh, so maybe they did invent it, Neil. <laughs> but anyway, do check out the story on a Register as it actually points out that there is in fact more to the patent um, than just stealing something from the 80s. This thing may actually be foldable which is kind of cool. So the story is definitely worth having a read. Um, And some of the patent is to do with specific design choices, like only having one port on the device and uh, potentially the cooling mechanisms that they employ to make it work as well. As I've said before, I'm not an Apple fan, but actually I'm both infuriated, but also excited by this patent. If it's well done and well-priced, Oh, no, sorry, it's Apple. Um, If it's well done, uh, maybe it'll finally be an Apple I'm tempted to take a bite out of. Chris, if I were to say the name Weird Al Yankovic, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Smells like Nirvana. Definitely. Um, White (laughs) and nerdy. It's all about the Pentiums, baby. Uh, Need I go on? In fact, Smells Like Nirvana is, I think I'm right in saying, the first album I ever bought. That album cover with Weird Al in the pool reaching for a donut, I believe it was. Fantastic. (laughs) Oh, no, no hesitation whatsoever there. Um, what year would that have been that you picked that up? Because it would have been oh, after asking. It would have been after 91, wouldn't it? After you know, the album that it's parodying. 
yeah, it was pretty soon after that, was it 91, 92? As soon as it came out, pretty much, is uh, a, yeah. a friend at college played it to me on their Walkman and I went straight down the record store and got a copy. Yeah. Nice. There's a phrase you don't hear very often these days. Listen to it on a Walkman, went down the record store. Um, the, the, the song that comes straight into my mind when I hear his name is Eat It. Get, eat it, get yourself an egg and beat it. Just cracks me up every time. Um, I've got some weird owl facts for you. And there is a, there is a reason we're talking about the guy that's <laughs> relevant to the show. But um, weird owl facts. He's 62 years old, born in 1959. His career started in 1976. And by 2007, he'd sold over 12 million albums. So it's going to be significantly higher now. Um, he's won five Grammy Awards. So not bad going for a, for a you know a comedy parody account uh, account um, act, and um, the thing that gets me is that he's he's well known in the UK. You would have been in the UK when you bought that album, and hmm. it means that being a parody act and being successful in the UK, coming from the states, uh, it means he's achieved something that's quite difficult to any parody act, which is that he's achieved universal appeal. Because I know it's not just the UK; it's way beyond where his influence goes, but it just happens to be where we were. So um, his comedy and his parodies and his music really does cross borders, and that's of course partly because it's funny, partly because he's an incredibly talented musician, and no doubt a good businessman as well. Which um, perhaps brings us on to. Uh, the thing that's coming out now, whether this is good business sense or not, you can be the judges. Um, or does uh, does his history, does everything he, he's achieved until now, does it all converge on this moment? Is this the peak of his business career? Because now there is a weird owl pinball table. Yes. <laughs> so I'll describe the table to you. Um, from a distance, you look at this thing and it, you know, it looks like a normal pinball table. It looks, uh, when I say normal, I, I mean one you would see in an arcade or a bar. So really well built it doesn't look like it's going to fall apart or that it's built for the home not flimsy at all uh, but when you take a closer look at the play field what you'll notice is looking down on it about three quarters of the table is digital so big screen there and then there's this top section this top quarter that lifts out and in and that's like a, a physical part of the play field so that's got the loop the loops and the things that spin round and and all of that stuff that the ball can physically interact with and clang against um so it's kind of like this hybrid table. It's the first time I've seen such a thing. I'm sure they've been around before, but I've I've never seen one like this before. And um, when the ball triggers reactions with the physical things at the top half, it triggers things happening. There's always something going on on the digital play field. So it's, you know, it's, it's very engaging. And the whole theme of the table is like a weird owl museum that charts the course of his career. So there's video cameras and musical instruments and things like that being triggered and, and his songs, of course. And um, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. So have you had a look at this, Chris? And what, what do you make of the weird owl pinball table? Yeah, I've, I've had a quick look um, and uh, it looks like a lot of fun, but I must confess, I didn't actually pick up. I didn't look close enough. I didn't pick up that it was a hybrid table. So that's certainly something I've not seen either. Um, bit of a weird thing, a weird out museum. That to me sounds very Duke Nukem. Do you know what I mean? It sounds quite egotistical. <laughs> so, um, I mean, Weird Al comes across as a nice guy, but at the end of the day, he's made a success of himself. If he can't have a, an actual museum, why not squeeze one into a pinball table? I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, I've not played a lot of actual physical pinball tables, um, but there, there was only certain ones that really sort of stuck with me in my mind. Sort of thing that I'd, if I was in an arcade and all my favorite games were busy, then I might throw a quid in a in a pinball table. But there were the, one of those things that 
if you had a good game, then great. But you could easily just waste your money in 30 seconds flat. It's just mm-hmm. dump three balls straight down the middle. I remember being convinced that there must be a strong magnet just following the center line straight between the um, the flippers. Um, but I remember it, there was an arcade in Tunbridge right next to Woolworths um, where they had the Star Wars pinball. They got that in. And that was probably the first one where I really took time to get to know the table, get to know the ramps, get to know which bits to hit to unlock different activities, and actually started to understand the process of a pinball game. I think they'd started to become more sophisticated by that point, whereby you know you have to hit this particular bumper to unlock this section of the game. Then you have to send the ball up this ramp. I think they had a trench run bit in there. And then they had the LED screen at the, at the top with the, the, you know, the scores, just the, the orange lights. But that was becoming interactive. So at certain points, the ball would get held by a magnet somewhere and you'd actually be playing a, a game on those little orange lights on the scoreboard. Fantastic. But yeah, a lot of time investment, a lot of money investment to actually get good at a table like that. But it was good fun. Yeah, it was good fun. What about your yeah. same? What was the draw to that table in particular? Was it just because of the Star Wars branding that you were drawn to learn more about that one? Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> it was. Yep. Star just Wars it was Star Wars. That was enough for me. Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, um, I was lucky enough recently to, I picked up um, a cocktail arcade recently. Uh, and while I was at the guy's house, um, a chap who is at Arcadesy over on Twitter, if you're listening, thank you again for this. Um, he gave me a little tour of his games room in his house. And uh, in there he had uh, original cocktail, uh, original pinball tables, including Elvira, which is one that everyone rave about. Um, sorry, not Elvira. He had Elvira, but Adam's family. That's the one a lot of people rave about. Um, I remember so he had that, that next to Elvira. Mm. Yeah, I think that was a very popular one. He had Star Wars, which you mentioned. Um, next to that, he had Bally's uh, Theater of Magic, I think it was called. So all of these classic pinball tables all lined up in a row. And um, I think in the same way that you've described it, pinball tables for me were always that thing in the arcade that were over in its own corner in the pinball section of the arcade. And I would go to them if the cabinets were busy, if the games that I want to play on were busy. And the, the reason I think for that was a psychological one, which is completely unwarranted, but I'll explain it, which was when I was playing cutting edge games, Street Fighter 2 coming out, Mortal Kombat, all, you know, all of those games, wanting to get my first play on it, my first look at it. The pinball games felt old-fashioned. And I think mm, the only reason yeah. for that is simply because of their mechanical nature. That's all it was. It doesn't. They weren't old-fashioned. They were cutting edge. But because they were physical and mechanical and there was a ball clunking around, I don't know why. Just psychologically, it felt old-fashioned to me. Um, when in actual fact, they're wonderful machines and, and many of them works of art inside and out. So since those days, I have learned how much fun they are and on rare occasions, I do get to play them. Um, so the, the question really is, if we come back to the Weird Al pinball, how does it hold up against those classics like the Adams family and Elvira and all of those. And it would take a real solid pinball enthusiast to be able to give us a a good answer. And maybe there's a listener out there who can give us an answer on our subreddit and let us know what their thoughts are. But um, I'd be interested to see, you know, does, does a hybrid semi-digital weird owl cabinet hold up to um, one of those classic originals, fully mechanical originals. And uh, then there's this other caveat to the whole table, which is um, it's not just a weird owl table. You can buy it as a Weird Al table, but it, because of the nature of it, it's interchangeable. So you've got that top section, 
which lifts out and then you can put another bunch of physical things in there for the ball to interact with load different software onto it you you get different digital visuals on there different play field and um then you suddenly have three or four or five or six different games that you can switch between if you buy all of them um and plug them in so um could give you value for money. We'll come on to the cost in a moment, but it's an interesting approach to pinball, I think. And of course, the other way you could go is a full virtual pinball table, which is quite popular at home because it negates all of the service and the maintenance. When I went to this guy's house, Arcade as beautiful as these machines were, you couldn't help but notice underneath each machine, he had a solid stack of spare parts, which he'd been collecting. You know, not that it needed them, but in anticipation of it needing them. So you need the skills to repair them. You need the parts. So it's quite popular now for people to build a fully digital play field to get that pinball experience. Um, have you ever tried uh, a digital or virtual pinball, Chris? No, I haven't tried one yet, but I really want to. I've, I've watched quite a few videos on them. And from the ones I've seen, you can even have like a, a, a like camera sensors so that depending on where your head is, the view kind of changes just a little bit to give you like a pseudo 3D effect as if you're like looking around the edges or looking around the bumpers. Um, I mean, that is just fantastic. That's that's just, just impressive technology in my view. Um, I, I love pinball computer games obviously pinball fantasy everybody talks about but any pinball games i'll give it a bash and some you get sucked into some you play for five minutes and, and you go back to the the, the old faithfuls so mm-hmm. the idea of a table a physical table with the, that whole tactile experience with the size of a physical table but actually the actual play field is digital so that when you get bored of a table you just swap it out when you get bored of that one then you've got extra sub games to load and all that kind of thing i think it's a really good way to go yeah, I think it's an appealing thing to have at home, um, definitely. Uh, and, and also people, when they build these virtual pinball tables, they also add things inside the cabinet that will actually physically thump the cabinet in line mm. with what's going on with the screen to give you that slightly more um, realistic experience. So it's certainly worth exploring. But then you've got this halfway house, this hybrid table. Yeah, so for a lot of people, virtual pinball is a very valid option. Um, Now, whether or not the hybrid option is good for you, well, the price is going to come into it here. So let me tell you about that. The retail price of this, um, there's a base model called the P3, which doesn't include the weird Alpac. It's just your base hybrid pinball table. That's $8,300. And then if you want the weird Alpac, it's thirteen thousand one hundred US dollars. So um, I imagine what's the difference there? Uh, about five thousand dollars for the pack. So you're probably looking at about four or five thousand dollars a time if you want to switch that up to a different table again. Now, you either need very deep pockets for that. We're talking, you know, Premiership footballer here, um, uh, NBA player, NFL. What what would you have to be sportsman wise in uh, Australia to afford this? A YouTuber. A YouTuber. Okay, so, so you've got yours on order then. <laughs> yeah, mine's, I've got three of these coming, Neil. <laughs> you've ordered one, right? Yeah. No, yeah, so, know, you know, a- AFL player. AFL is the big thing over here. So, yeah. Uh, okay, that's Australian. Or, 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 or a TikTok influencer. And I'm not even joking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a lot of money. Um, or what you're going to need to do is put this thing in a public space where you can get a return on your investment, where people are going to pump money into it. Now, would I consider one for here at the cave? Probably not, because my ethos here is to try and keep things original and give people access to the old school original hardware. Um, but if it was a you know a hybrid arcade bar 
you know, somewhere to hang out, somewhere where the authenticity of the machines is less important, then I can see this, you know, it certainly looks like it's built to hold up to that kind of environment. So, um, yeah, interesting. Um, we'll, we'll see where it goes and we'll see if one appears near us anytime soon. Uh, if you want to check this out, as well as the other tables that were on offer, if you've got, you know, 13 grand burning a hole in your pocket, then head over to multimorphic.com or uh, check the show notes for links. What would you think, Neil, if I said insubordination for fighting on the bridge? For fighting on the bridge. Um, so uh, this makes me think of my hometown. So you're going to get a longer answer than perhaps you're anticipating here, Chris. So in my hometown, in uh, a place called Dorchester, down in Dorset on the south coast of England, and there's this humpback road bridge in there, and there's a sign on it, and I'm going to read out to you what it says on the sign. So on this bridge, it says, any person willfully injuring any part of this county bridge will be guilty of felony and upon conviction, liable to be transported for life by the court. So um, this was a bridge that was built in the mid 1700s. And of course, where do you think you would be liable to be transported to in the mid 1700s? Chris? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. Well, it's cheaper than buying a return flight, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, yes. Australia. How do you injure so, a bridge? Well, you tell me. So uh, if, if you want to know about bridge insubordination, then maybe ask who's around you, Chris. <laughs> yeah. oh, I think we've crossed the line there. But anyway, no, that's not what I'm referring to. Um, insubordination for fighting on the bridge, or if you say it really, really fast with a really high pitch voice. Um, that's what me and my mates back in the day used to think Liu Kang was saying when performing the what? bicycle kick. <laughs> In Mortal Kombat on the Snith. No, give it a give it a go, Neil. Go on, say it. Nice and fast, nice and high. It's a nation for fighting on the bridge. So in like it's a nation for fighting on the bridge. There it is. It's <laughs> Liu Kang. That was a that was a perfect impersonation of Liu Kang. Anyway. Yeah, okay. I get it. I don't know how you came to those words exactly, but it works, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember if it was my mate. I remember the mate that's told me it was it was his it was called James. I can't remember if we just came up with it or if we'd read it in a magazine that somebody else had suggested it and then we all listened to it over and over again and went yeah that's what right. you say no, you can't you can't make me do it and not do it yourself so you give us your oh. impression it's important from fighting on the bridge <laughs> anyway <laughs> yours was way better yours was way better <laughs> anyway back back to the story before we get back to vacuum cleaners or something um subreddit user uh pajaco 6502 has alerted us to an article on hackaday about an arcade rom hack that makes the home port of Mortal Kombat for the Mega Drive, or Genesis, um, arcade perfect. Now, memory's a funny thing. Um, uh, I'm sure I knew at the time that the home ports weren't quite the same as the arcade, but I'd really forgotten, um, and I don't think I'd have cared back then either. I mean, we've discussed this before. The quest back then was if you had your favorite arcade game, you wanted to play as close to the arcade experience as you possibly could, in the home. And I think mm. during that period for games like Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter 2, the home ports were actually pretty close if you were on a SNES or a Mega Drive. Not quite so true of things like the Amiga yeah. and ST. But for the consoles, they were pretty good. Um, but I'd totally forgotten, for example, that apparently the SNES version being family-friendly Nintendo was heavily censored in terms of the gore that they included or, in fact, didn't include. Um, and the same was true as the, of the Mega Drive, but you could unlock the gore with a cheat code, um, so it wasn't too big a deal. Well, now, apparently, that version has been fully hacked, not, uh, not only to bring back the gore, 
but to modify the graphics to be even more arcade perfect than they already were. I, I remember the the day I first played the arcade version. Actually, Neil, it was in it was in a pub, and one of my mates called me over to the machine. He said, "Chris, you're gonna love this," and and he wasn't wrong. Um, there was just so much about that game that was that was just different at the time. First and foremost, the sprites they were sort of photographed actors, weren't they, or filmed actors, and then that's what they used to create the the character sprites and animation. So it, it wasn't photo realistic, but it was. You know that was different it was, in itself. It was a huge step up from the Pit Fighter that we'd seen before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, there's the gore that goes without saying. We hadn't really seen anything on that level in a game before. There was the special moves. I mean, yes, you had Street Fighter Two, but this again took that to another level in terms of the complexity of the moves. Some, what I liked about it was some moves were familiar. Like if you could pull off a fire punch with ryu in street fighter 2 well generally that would have some effect in a couple of at least two of the characters in mortal Kombat as well so that that same combination you could carry over and then you got to learn the more complicated one so that was nice and then of course there's the fatalities which everybody goes on about um but i mostly played i only played it in the arcade a couple of times i mostly played the snes port myself and i have many good memories of just sitting down and, and playing that with friends um, did you look up from your point-and-click adventures long enough, Neil, to play with Mortal Kombat? <laughs> I did, I did, and, and I'm surprised you looked up from your flight simulators long enough, Chris. <laughs> but, uh, the the first home port that I played of it was on the Sega Mega Drive. Um, you mentioned the blood code. Uh, it was a pretty solid port on the Mega Drive, and, and we had to type in that blood code, which um, everyone normally think looks back and thinks, "Oh, yeah, Nintendo were the prude ones." But it was on it was on uh, Sega's uh, request that it was also toned down as well on the Mega Drive. Um, so, uh, Mortal Kombat without the blood is ridiculous. It's a key part of the game. You have to have it in there. And I seem to remember the blood code um, always reminded me of Abracadabra. It was like A B B A C A B B something. It was some something along those lines to unlock it on the Mega Drive. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoyed playing that at my friend Ollie's house. But the thing that the next thing that impressed me with Mortal Kombat was when I saw it ported to the PC. And the reason for that, I think it was probably a 386 PC that it was running on, which is more than capable of running on it. But the, the reason I was surprised by it was because we'd seen the Street Fighter 2s on the Super Nintendo and that long period of exclusivity that it got on the Super Nintendo. We all wanted to play it, but you had to buy a Super Nintendo to play it in those early years. And um it, it was just assumed then that any top tier blockbuster fighting games would be constrained, would would have exclusivity rights given to Sega or Nintendo, throwing the most money at it to get those rights. So when a good version appeared on the PC and it was still fairly current and relevant, that was a really nice surprise. And it did a good job of it on the PC um, with the caveat that, yes, you had to make sure you go out and get a decent joypad for it. You know, it's, it's no good playing Mortal Kombat on a keyboard. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the arcade itself, I do remember hanging around and, and I would um, hang around to watch it. The attract scene on it was really impressive because you, you had voices, you had the digitized actors. Um, you got to see some of the the different levels and the pit and things like that on the attract mode, didn't you? And some of the gore, it would tantalize you with the gore. And I would hang around just to see if the player having a go on it could actually pull off a fatality because I was so terrible at them myself. So the only way I would yes. see them is if I looked over someone's shoulder. So, you know, it was always impressive to see that pulled off. Now, going back to this release, you say this is a ROM hack and uh, you said that it makes the Mega Drive version of the game arcade perfect. 
I'm going to pull you up on that. Is that actually possible? Is this truly arcade perfect on a Mega Drive? It surely doesn't have the same uh, color palette, for example. Uh, is it? Is it just a hack that makes it a bit better? Or, or when you say arcade perfect, you mean arcade perfect, Chris? No, that, that's that's a good point. I mean. Uh, at the end of the day, the story written by Drew Literal does give some detail about the improvements, uh, and they include things like things that were omitted from the original have been restored, higher quality sound effects and graphics, and it actually states in the project page that 80 sound effects from the arcade have been added, um, so that, that's pretty cool. Every fighter, every single fighter has been remastered closer to the original. Timing and animations have been improved. Um, level designs have been adapted to be close to the original. Too much to list. Uh, you really do need to take a look at the project page. But yeah, I mean, you're right, Neil. Technically, it probably can't be arcade perfect, but it certainly sounds as if they've done as much as they possibly can to get it as close as they can. Um, mm -hmm. The hack comes in the form of an IPS patch that can be applied to the original game ROM dump. Uh, and according to the story, development was led by some guy called Paolo, and the link provide the link provided in the story takes you to the project page on romhacking.net, which gives you more information about the team and the project in general. Hmm. I mean, it, it, um, it reviewed pretty well on most platforms back in the day. So for it to be even better is an impressive thing that they've managed to do that. Hmm. Yeah, like I said, I, I don't remember feeling the need. It certainly felt good enough. And playability was there, and that's what counts at the end of the day when you're taking it home. So many arcade ports were just a disappointment on every level, including playability, and I don't think that was the case for this. So if you felt like the Mega Drive version wasn't quite flawless or left you feeling sub-zero, but you can't be bothered to build a MAME cabinet, then get over here and download the ROM hack for a perfect fatality. Puns just keep on coming. <laughs> <laughs> Our final story this week is quite the thing to behold. It's a NES emulator. What's so special about that, you may think? Well, what if I told you it emulates the NES down to the metal at the transistor level? This is a project by the author of the well-known and, let's be frank, childishly named Nesticle emulator. Programmer Isa Addis has created a whole new emulator designed to simulate the system right down to the flow of voltage through its components. Sounds complex because it is. So, so complex that a modern Mac, um, which is the only system that it's available to run on at the moment, I'm sure it'll be ported to many others. But on a modern Mac, if you run this emulator, you're looking at uh, render speeds of one frame every two to three minutes. Well, never mind 60 frames per second. One frame, two to three minutes on a NES. Never mind, will it run Crisis? Will, will, will it run Mega Man is the mantra of new modern hardware uh, on this emulator, which is called Metal NES. And regardless of the frame rate of the actual game, you also get a view of the CPU and any other parts of the system that you really want to drill down to and just see right down to the metal what exactly is happening here no doubt you can pause it at any point and, and all of that fun stuff to see what's going on and extract information um we'll get a, a little bit more on the why and how in a moment chris but on the uh, nez give check us your favorite nez games <laughs> well when the nez was a thing uh, probably the only games i played were duck hunt uh, and that would have been in the shops um, and Mario Brothers which is probably also in the shops although I have played it a couple of times outside of that I played on on my nephew's one over here um, 
few months back because only because he brought it around and wanted to make a video about it but again we played mario brothers um i don't know why it wasn't a system i had much interest in back in the day um i always wanted the sega master system but again i didn't get around to buying one of those either um what about yourself yeah they they were the packing games with the zapper gun weren't they so a lot of people would have had those two games specifically um i always loved and i still the first game i load up on a nes emulator is excite bike for some reason just simple good fun uh river city ransom is one that i used to play with a friend two player sort of double dragon style side scroller um and i also had a friend with like a piracy floppy disk device so we played anything and everything we could get our hands on really on that thing which was a lot of fun um the author of this metal nez also wrote nestico as i mentioned which came back out in 1997 so been around a long time did you did you ever use that nestico sorry what was what was the question you know, i was just working on my list of things i've never played with Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and games i've never played (laughs) games you've never played things you've never tried well you know we've got different histories and tastes uh, when it comes to nostalgia so i know there are certain systems that we focus in on but you know the nes can't be ignored for for its breadth and its wealth of games in the library and also for being the place of origin for so many franchises that you will have played chris i'm sure you will have played so you must have gone back at some point and explored that library, right? Have you done that? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, there, there's several factors to why I haven't. I mean, one is the, the cost of retro gaming itself now. It's, I, I think I jumped on at the wrong time. It's not like you can pick up these things for £5 in a car boot sale anymore. So it's, it's quite a financial investment to pick up a, an NES if you don't particularly want one or the games. Um, Someone with fond memories, even if I did have access to one, if somebody offered me one, I'd probably say no, because in my view, somebody with fond memories towards it should have it rather than it sitting on my shelf unused most of the time. And I mean, yeah, we're talking about emulation here. So no, I haven't used Nesticle, but part of that is just there's not enough time in the day, Neil. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, I'd love to catch up with a lot of this stuff, but I'm so um, happy with just revisiting the things that I have fond memories for. And I will expand outside of that as time goes on but that that's my focus at the moment my memories of the nez and they are still happy memories are of playing things like duck hunt in boots on the way home from school and i'm happy for those to remain just that memories it's entirely your choice i'm not gonna for a moment suggest a new segment of the show called chris plays in which listeners submit something that you must play each week i'm not gonna suggest that that actually might be a good idea though <laughs> So uh, back on the topic of this metal NES uh, and this ultra low level method of emulation, it's a, it's certainly an interesting approach. Um, do you think this is <laughs> do you think this is something that appeals to you, Chris? I'm going to guess no, having heard what you've just <laughs> said there. Or does it feel kind of like we're we're peering into the window of, of the project of a man who wants to do this just because he can? Well, I mean, I was interested in those those render times for the frames and the fact that it only runs on a Mac, so maybe that's the problem. Um, but no, if if I'm understanding this correctly, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Neil, so he's essentially rebuilt the circuits, as in the gates, the, 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 the um, choice gates of the chipset of a Nintendo Entertainment System, only he's done it essentially by creating a complete virtual circuit. Am I understanding this? That's what he's done. Mm-hmm. Yep. So so this isn't an NES emulator, really. It's an electric simulator or electronic simulator that happens to be configured like an NES. I mean, that's mental. 
<laughs> it is mental. It is mental. I mean, it's not <clears throat> it's not something that hasn't been done before, just re- rarely to this scale. You know, you might um, you might lay out a, a keyboard matrix or something like that in your little bit of electronics design software as part of your uni course or whatever you're doing. Uh, but to, to go down to every facet of a NES is quite spectacular. And um, I think the whole project highlights a couple of important things for me. Uh, the approach, um, well, really, it's something you'd normally pick up an FPGA chip to do if you wanted to do this. Uh, so the, the speed of things, the speed that this runs at, one one or two frames every couple of minutes on a desktop PC um, using a regular CPU First of all, it highlights what a great job an FPGA does because you configure them to behave in that way. And of course, you're getting your 60 frames per second out of it. My Mr. Nez core, you know, certainly doesn't run at one or two frames every every couple of minutes. But what it also highlights is that you don't need an FPGA chip to do this. It can be done with a general purpose CPU. Uh, and we all know what happens. The, the march of technology goes on. One frame today will be 60 frames per second in five years time or whatever i don't know if five years might be a little bit optimistic <laughs> we'll see but um who knows where it might lead and uh, perhaps what we'll see out of this and any other projects like this is bare metal style emulation working its way into main that's when it becomes i'm not saying it's not accessible at the moment but you know if it goes into main it's basic generally accepted and accessible to anyone who wants to enjoy uh, games through emulation so We'll see where it goes. One day, maybe that's the point we'll get to. Uh, and I think we can all agree that the author of it clearly has a brain the size of a planet to be able to knock this out. And um, we should all go and peer into his world and see what it's all about. So when you get a moment, check the show notes again, have a look. Even if you don't download it and run it, have a look at the screenshots just to get a flavor of seeing how it's laid out with the game in one window and the CPU and other chips in other windows it's it's absolutely mad, and um, it's one of those things that, well, I just appreciate that it exists, and uh, you probably should do too. So go and check the show notes and have a look. So it's time for our question of the week, and we'll cover last week's question, which was all about your Sinclair Spectrum memories. So where did you uh, where did you start with the Spectrum? Did you get on board with it from launch? Were you late to the party? Was it a games machine for you, or were you a serious user? Was it a, a good business machine, in your opinion? Or should it have been on the floor of every child's bedroom to uh, to play games with? Were you an owner or did you have envious eyes for the C64 or the CPC or any other system? So, um, Chris, do you want to start off with our first answer on the subreddit this week? Yep. So, Protech438 says, I didn't own a Spectrum before I began began collecting old computers in the early 2000s. A Sinclair Spectrum, however, was the first old computer I was able to repair. I thought I'd give it a go and uh, as a repair project, and the Spectrum in its simple design seemed a perfect candidate with its relatively simple architecture. I found one from eBay, and boy, did it turn out to be a story of finding one problem after another <laughs> and, a, uh, and of perseverance. If my memory doesn't fail me, I changed the 7805 regulator, both TR4 and TR5 power transistors, all 48K of RAM, the Z80 CPU, the ULA, and also TR7 and a diode. It certainly didn't turn out to be cheap, at least 10 years, um, which is when he did it. But it was a great learning experience, um, and I got it in perfect working condition in the end. I'm not 100% sure what had caused such damage, but I suspect the AC outputting transformer it was shipped with had something to do with it. 
The Spectrum was later passed on, but I still have a plus three and a 48K clone uh, that is a drop-in replacement in the original case. I can see the Spectrum strength, uh, and I really do appreciate the aesthetics of the Spectrum line case design. The Spectrum has an active community around it with new peripherals coming out and uh, and the hobbyists also work to expand the hardware limitations uh, with new and improved ULA replacements and to overcome the color clash. Also, if you ask me, the rubber keyboard feels a lot more responsive than the updated Spectrum Plus keyboard. Do you need to overcome the color clash? Is that a thing? I don't, I don't think the color clash needs to be overcome. I think it's just... I thought that was done in software, like by clever developers rather than but do you need do you need to overcome it it's part spectrum. of its charm it, yeah yeah um but yeah a nice answer it sounds like the spectrum of thesis there you know every part has, has been replaced inside it and uh, quite a common problem uh, or common reason for that much damage um is the simple fact that they use these reverse polarity um mm. power plugs on the spectrum so if you put in a, a regular polarity plug uh that there's little in there to stop everything getting blown all to hell so um highly likely that that's what's happened with that spectrum and uh, nice to hear that he's got it working and learned so much along the way so our next answer comes from oz retro comp and he says i was very late to the zx spectrum party got my first 48k spectrum in early 2020 but i was fortunate enough to end up with another specy that needed a lot of work of all the vintage machines I've worked on, the Speccy is my favorite. It's easy to understand, easy to work on, and spare parts are readily available. If you can find an untested or broken Speccy for cheap, it's probably the best retro restoration project for a newbie to cut their teeth on. Yeah, no arguments with that. I think that's a, a good place to start. There's still plenty of them around. Um, mm. And, you know, if one's damaged already, what harm are you doing? Have, have a crack at it. <laughs> Yeah, what I like about it, they're still cheap as well. I mean, they're, they're they're quite easy to get hold of because there were so many of them made. So yeah. they're not they're not yeah they're not expensive to get into. So the last answer from Fuskit is how I'm going to pronounce that. You guys got to think up some different names. I got mine from a car boot sale in the late nineties uh, when they were worth absolutely nothing. It came in a full, if battered, box complete with the polystyrene manuals and even the warranty cards. It never worked, and there was a sticker on the underneath saying random graphics so there we go short but sweet <laughs> spectrum story there random graphics that describes every spectrum game <laughs> um thank you everyone for your answers uh really good answers and um that was of course all off the back of the the birthday of the zx spectrum and there's a lot more 40th birthdays coming this year i believe for uh, a lot of retro micros and um now on to our, our question for this week now I've, i think i've got a good one for us chris um, I mentioned that people should be telling you what game to play. But if we expand on that, let's go with uh, if you were to try and justify your retro hobby and your enthusiasm for retro, and you could do it by presenting to your friend just one game on any system, what game would you pick? What game would you put in front of them and say, this is why retro gaming and retro computers are so good. This is why gaming can be timeless. This is why uh, modern day graphics uh, and four-hour updates don't mean all of that that much if you're coming down to just concentrating a game down to the pure fun factor of it. This is what you should try. Mm, difficult one. Ooh. Hopefully it's got you thinking. Nice. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have an instant answer. answer to that. 
I don't have an Instagram. <laughs> well, we've got, we got a week to think about it. So let us yeah. know your answers over on our subreddit, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. As always, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. See ya. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil Thomas from RMC The Cave and Chris Winter from 005 Agima. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.